Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. This week, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chen. Welcome. How are you doing, bud? I'm all right. Uh, What's your tagline? Ooh, I'm real busy like a bee. Buzz, buzz. I don't know. That's great. <laughs> I loved it. Why were you so, so menacing? <laughs> Sam Schultz is also here. Good day, mate. Oh, good one. What's your favorite marsupial? There's only like four of them. That's not true. There's so many marsupials. Uh, There's all the mar- mammals. Kangaroo, they got, it's like smaller kangaroo, kind of bigger kangaroo. <laughs> koala. And then a bunch of wallabies that all kind of Do you know the, the possum is a marsupial? Yeah. What's the one we got? That one's maybe my favorite. I like that one. I like them. They're cute. I think they're cute. I like that they're cute and then really scary. Yeah, they have terrible insides of their mouths. (laughs) Yeah. What's your tagline? Roast beefy leafy. Whoa. I don't like it at all. (laughs) Sarah Riley is also here. I am. How are you doing? Okay, I'm wearing a, a vacation shirt today. You do. It does look like it's time for vacation. Yeah. Uh, what's your tagline, Sari? Buckle up, kids. Ooh. Ooh it's time buzz, to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Hank Green. And my tagline is 100 per saligator. 
Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with the facts about science. We're playing for glory, and we're also keeping score and awarding Hank Bucks from week to week. So, we do what we can to stay on topic, but the podcast is called Tangents, and if your tangent is deemed unworthy, we'll force you to give up one of your Hank Bucks. And as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with a traditional science poem. This week, it's from me. Long organic polymers of high molecular weight, massive chains of atoms, twisty, curved, or straight, sometimes created from fossil fuels, sometimes from agriculture. It's a useful and convenient part of our disposable culture. We use it every day. Of course, as Barbie said, life in plastic is fantastic as long as we're not dead. Wow! Yeah, life yeah. is life in plastic is fantastic. As long as, as we're not dead, I added that. Oh, part. okay. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, plastics do have their downsides, and mm-hmm. I don't want them to. I don't know. I feel like we worry a lot about plastics. Mm-hmm. It's like the ocean's clogged with plastic. I'm like, oh, it's there but small. Yeah, oh. it's a big ocean. There okay. are bad areas. So it's fine. But there's not like a Texas-sized island of plastic, which is the impression I get sometimes. I thought mm. there was. I thought there was. No. No. Well, then what What are we worried about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. What's that? It exists. It's microplastics mostly. Yeah. You That's can't like, like yeah, a there... Texas-sized area where there's a slightly higher concentration of right. microplastic in the water. Yeah. Or, you know, like it's, it, it's, it's a, you know, much higher than you would like. Right. But you can't like walk on it. Oh, <laughs> I thought it's... it was just a... Like rubber duckies and all kinds of stuff just floating out there. Well, that's the other thing is that like the the plastic in the ocean is mostly fishing nets, and that's also the most concerning piece of plastic because like it's designed to catch, to catch fish. fish in it. But we do have too much plastic; it does last forever, and we should stop drinking out of disposable containers. I agree with. Mm. Yeah. Seems like people are so close to not doing that anymore, and that's kind of relapsed to what, me. At least. What, which direction were we going? Where we stopped drinking it seems soda? Like people were thinking more about like. <laughs> Don't use plastic water bottles. Right. But now it like it's right out. Yeah. Nobody mm-hmm. cares anymore. Except Sarah's Sarah got with your her, with right her there. analogy. Mm-hmm. What's plastic, Sarah? <laughs> you did a pretty good job defining it in the poem because it is a organic compound that's mm-hmm. often a long polymer chain. Okay, we gotta unpack some things here. Uh, <laughs> what's an organic compound? So yeah, so it's a carbon containing compound and they can be synthetic or semi-synthetic so they can be made from just man-made materials uh-huh. like chemicals or they can be made from like structural compounds that we find in nature and that we react with one another like cellulose. Is there any purely natural plastic? Like rubber from rubber trees? This is where the definition gets a little fuzzy for me because I'm not a material scientist. Sure. It seems like rubber is not plastic. Oh, okay. Because plastic's main property is plasticity, so okay. that it deforms irreversibly. But hmm. rubber's main uh. property is elasticity, which means it deforms and then snaps back into its original shape. Okay. And so rubbers yeah. can huh. be mixed with plastics to uh. form different compounds, but they are too... Like ends of a, right. a material science. And now it's time for One of our panelists has prepared three science facts for us, but only one of those facts is true, and the rest of us have to guess or know which one is the real fact. And if we get it right, we get the Hank Buck. And if not, Sari gets the Hank Buck. Sari, it's time for you to try and fool us. Okay. Semi-synthetic plastics have been around for a while, like how celluloid film can be traced back to the sugar polymer cellulose from plants. If you can get a substance to polymerize through chemical reactions and have plasticity, you've basically made a plastic. So I guess I am contradicting myself already. Okay. So, which of these proteins was historically used to make a plastic? 
Number one, casein from milk to try and make erasable whiteboards instead of black chalkboards. Okay, gross. Two, hemoglobin from animal blood to make jewelry beads that oxidize to be a deep red hue over time. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Or three, convulsin from snake venom to make exceptionally strong but expensive plastics using handguns for decoration and functionality. Whoa, convulsin? Yeah. Convulsin with an X. C O N V U L X I N. That's a terrible one. Sounds like something in snake venom. Definitely in snake venom. (laughs) Don't put that inside of you. Venomy. I've heard of the that protein in milk. Yeah, that's definitely milk milk protein. White. Milk is white. White boards are also white. (laughs) Which makes me think it's a lie. That's misleading. The connections that seems like one of those things where you're just trying to play on my like biases, my psychological biases. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I'm not sure if the trick is what it was made into or if oh, it exists. Okay. Hemoglobin turned it, like, it's just a very complicated protein, hemoglobin. It seems like it would be a difficult thing to polymerize is my main concern with that one. Is it easier to polymerize simple things? Well, most polymers are really simple. Huh. Well, does hemoglobin have, is that the part that has the iron? Yeah. So hemoglobin is a complex of different proteins, like four different proteins around the sort of iron-containing part of the... Okay. See, um, again there, that seems like a lie. Because then it's like, okay, the hemoglobin's got the iron, and then you make a bead in it. Oxidizes like iron does. Yeah. Wink, wink. <laughs> uh, trick me. Yeah, I mean, making snake venom into guns also feels... That like, feels just weird. It feels, so it must yeah. be it feels, true. It feels kind of like the same kind of lie, where it's really? like, it's white, and it's a whiteboard. It's a <laughs> snake, and it's a gun. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna kill you and it's still gonna kill you okay okay you see and it's it's uh. it's blood and it's blood like object to be <laughs> i'm leaning toward case and making whiteboards me too uh. i think that one because i know case is like a thing that they tried to make into stuff i'm gonna go with the snake venom one it's going with snake venom i'm gonna go with my own gut i'm not gonna listen to these boneheads over here <laughs> even though samson <laughs> knew the answer mm-hmm. okay I'm sorry, Stefan. Sam didn't know the answer. (laughs) And the snake venom one is just the one that I completely made up because I thought it'd be cool. (laughs) Guns and snakes. Guns and snakes. Like, if you can put venom into anything, what would rich people buy? A fancy gun. Yeah. Yeah. So, Uh, wait, did they try to make blood into stuff, into products, like plastic products? So, yeah, there was a thing called hemocyte in 1885, which was apparently animal blood, which they didn't have a use for, mixed with sawdust. And then this article in whatever old newspaper I found was not very specific. It said some chemicals Uh, uh, (laughs) and they mushed it together and really squeezed it to make it compact. And they would make like doorknobs out of it. They would make roller skating wheels out of it. Whoa! Uh, What's this stuff called? Hemocyte. H-E-M-A-C-I-T-E. It was like a tough material. I don't think it would be considered a plastic necessarily, depending on what. No, I don't think so. I don't think it had a, it was a polymer or Mm -hmm. anything. It was just like Mm -hmm. very squished together wood with blood as a binder. Mm -hmm. In in 2018, apparently someone took 100% cow's blood and also put it under a lot of pressure and dried it out and made it into into some sort of compound. So like people have turned blood (laughs) into solid objects before. Nice. Um, Can I do that? Can like Catherine and I make blood gems yes. and and wear them on each other's fingers? Literal blood diamonds, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but milk plastics, totally a thing, which is very weird to me. 
still um, don't believe it. Yeah, yeah, it's weird to polymerize a protein, man. Huh. Yeah. Um, it was first created in around 1897 and patented oh. in 1899 uh, when a German material scientist or printing press owner, something like that. It was developed as an alternative to blackboards. So they were like, what can we do to make a, a whiteboard, basically? Right. But it didn't end up being good for whiteboards, but it was fairly easy to make as far as synthetic plastics go at the time. It was easy to color whatever you wanted. And so it became a staple in like jewelry and other like a, it was basically anything you could think of for a cheap plastic at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. People used it as that. And it became popular when Coco Chanel, I think, used what is called Galilith or casein plastic. Mm -hmm. That's the name of it huh. in an ad, like in a clothing ad. And people were like, oh, milk plastic is fashionable. Okay, sure. <laughs> Next up, we're going to take a short break. And then it's time for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening. That all, all that's building up around you. Oh, this is like, terrifying. I'm so, <laughs> I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, Factor Ad. I don't, I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get okay. chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. <laughs> Heck yeah, Factor. Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. Hello and welcome back, Hank Buck Totals, for the episode thus far. Sarah, you have one. Sam, you have one. Stefan, you have zero. And I have two, because I did a poem. So This is my comeback time. Well, I guess, sure, yeah. Possibly. come back, because it's time for the fact off, in which two of our panelists, this week, Stefan and Sam, are going to present uh, me and Sarah science facts in an attempt to blow our minds. And our minds are sturdy. 
So you have to work hard. <laughs> we each have a Hank Buck to award the fact that we like the most, but if we hate them both, we can throw them away and burn them in the fire. And to decide who goes first, we're going to go by who each one of you has the most credit cards on you right now. Ooh, on us on right me? now? Yeah. I don't carry all of mine with me. I have a debit card. <laughs> Does that count? It's just loose in your pocket. <laughs> That's why. I like to live dangerously. Yeah. How many you got? Three. Three. Is one of them a debit card? It's five, including debit cards. Wow. You've got <laughs> I have, five on I have you two debit cards, and I have an Amazon card, and a Target card, and a Costco card. Oh, I see. You're loaded down with plastic. I got it. So give me your facts. Let's do it. Uh, so I think we've talked about before on the show the like different ways that bees are affected by the presence of humans. Um, like with colony collapse disorder, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but some species of bees, which I didn't know for a long time, are solitary. Mm-hmm. So they don't have hives or make a bunch of honey and honeycomb and all that. In those species, each individual female bee has to construct its own nest. And it seems like a lot of the time they like to find like little long, narrow, like tube holes to do that in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so some of these species are also leaf cutter bees that have really strong like mandibles that let them cut little sections of leaves out and then they bring those back to their tube and like line the walls and make a little nest. And so in the last 10 years, what we've been seeing is that various leaf cutter bees are incorporating pieces of plastic into the nest construction. Okay. So instead of cutting out little bits of leaf, they'll cut out a bit of, of like a plastic bag or something like that. So sure. it's still like soft and thin pliable plastic, but then they incorporate that into the lining for their nest cells. There was a 2019 report that was the first time that they'd seen the entire nest constructed out of plastic. They were even stealing little bits of polyurethane-based sealants off of buildings to, like, glue the leaves together. between the windows? Mm -hmm. From, like, material to, like, sealant, like, everything that they were using was plastic-based. And they don't really know if it's good or bad yet, but it could be a sign that, like, they're just really adaptable and, like, are grabbing whatever's there. Right. And they can make it work. Um, But it could mean that, like, the plants that they normally use for Mm -hmm. that sort of thing are not around as much. They did say that it didn't seem like the best building material because they, they found only three cells total in this one nest, and one had a dead larva in it, and one seemed to have worked fine, and then the other one wasn't finished. So not the best track record there. Also a pretty small sample, but right, yeah. Um, but in other papers, they had noted that like they'd seen bees nesting in straws. Okay. And that mm. protected them from parasites because they can't penetrate the straw. Oh. But then they also lose most of the larvae to mold because it can't oh, also can't yeah. get rid of moisture. So kind of right. good, good, so good I should and bad, not but... build a bee nest out of boba tea straws. <laughs> Because that's I what mean, I, I had that thought. You know, in a pinch, <laughs> they might be able. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not going to speak for the bees. I'm not a representative <laughs> of the bees. Who speaks for the bees? <laughs> the alliance of bees. But yeah, so that that's the fact is that they they had a 100% plastic bee nest wow. that they found. Do you think the bees like the plastic? Like there's some bees who think that yeah, the plastic I mean, they, is the best? They think that might be one of the possibilities too is that there's some reason that they haven't figured out yet that the bees actually so prefer, prefer using right. the plastic. They're like, this is great. It's super, like it's not rotting. It's like yeah. impenetrable and I can do, do a better seal with this stuff than I can with leaves. Mm-hmm. Keep those uh, parasites they, out. They also mentioned that They've seen like birds lining their nests with cigarette butts nice. because it keeps parasites out. Oh my god! Whoa, but it cool. probably isn't great for the eggs sure, and stuff in there. Sure. I don't know. If, yeah. So yeah, 
I don't know. All right. If they like it or not. I don't know if they like it. I don't speak speak for the bees. bees. We covered this already. (laughs) Stefan, I need you to go interview the bees. Go find them. Speak for the bees. I am the Stefan. I speak for the bees. (laughs) Hello, my name is Stefan. May I interest you in... In a boba tea straw. (laughs) Yeah. God, I want a boba tea. (laughs) Uh, Sam, what's your fact? All right. So in America in the 1860s, billiards was a big honking deal. Billiards, but like pool in general, I think any form of pool. Uh, So there were thousands of pool halls across the country, but America's foremost billiard ball manufacturer, Phelan and Colander, had a big problem. Billiard balls were made out of ivory, uh, and the tables and other accessories that were made for billiard balls took into account like how ivory moved, how it bounced, how heavy it was. Mm -hmm. But ivory was incredibly expensive and they were running out of people who were rich enough to be able to afford a set of billiard balls. They needed to come up with a cheaper solution fast so they offered $10,000 in cash or $200,000 in today money to anybody who could come up with an alternative to ivory to use for these balls. So John Wesley Hyatt, who was a photo printer from Albany and his brother Isaiah heard about this competition and it just so happened that John had fairly recently acquired a patent from a British inventor named Alexander Parks for a waterproofing agent that was made when Parks realized that when a certain kind of developing agent dried, like a hard left behind thing, he had a lot of this stuff sitting around to dry. So they started messing around with it and figured out how to harden it and shape it. And they made their own ivory free pool balls and they Hmm. dubbed the thing that they were made out of celluloid. Their new balls had a few problems that prevented them from actually winning the contest though. Mainly was that they were kind of just really shitty. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They were were not like ivory. Yeah. They didn't bounce right. They didn't feel right. Nobody who played pool liked them and the company would not give them the prize money for it. Uh, But they still set up a pool supply company and they sold even worse versions of the balls that were just plaster that had a thin layer of the stuff on it. So they're like, you don't like our balls? Fine. (laughs) We'll show you bad balls. (laughs) Uh, But it seems like a lot of people out west bought them, but the lack of quality of the balls seems like a small issue compared with another problem, which is that celluloid is super flammable. So Ooh, hot balls. Yeah, when the balls would hit together too hard, they would make a little explosion or like catch on fire. Um, (laughs) That is a problem. (laughs) Yeah, Not a huge explosion, but like loud enough that they were getting letters from people out west oh, yeah. who owned bars who said that when this would happen, the people in the bars would all draw their guns. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't great. Uh, eventually, they pivoted celluloid into faux ivory products in general, mm-hmm. like combs and buttons for clothes. Okay. But they also had the same problem where if you were like in the sun too long and they got too hot oh, or something like that, they would burst into flames. No. <laughs> and it killed a few people. What? Uh, and then eventually, of course, they started using celluloid for movie film reels, and that would also catch on fire mm-hmm. and kill everybody in the theater. Okay. Occasionally that would happen too. But, but it was like good enough. Though. Yeah, so at the end of the day, it was good enough that it was the first commercially successful form of plastic. And it oh, also okay. probably kickstarted people trying to find forms of plastic that did not explode and <laughs> kill everybody. <laughs> yeah. The celluloid brothers, uh-huh. did they, were they like, commercially successful like when we I believe so. started using celluloid film like they made money off of that I think celluloid film came after them okay because I couldn't find anything that linked their company to making that sure but I think celluloid 
fashion products were pretty successful and they so were like making the combs those. and stuff that like mm. and you have like a thing on your head uh-huh. a barrette that just like you go outside for too long and your head catches on fire <laughs> yeah and that this is a this is a bad thing and uh-huh. did they feel bad it doesn't oh. seem like anybody really felt like that <laughs> no. human life yeah it was the 1800s yeah and i think that their pool supply company was successful even though they were making bad balls yeah, Just well, I mean, if you're making bad balls for way cheaper, and yeah. the people out west, they don't know. They've never they used an know. ivory ball. Yeah. It's all brand new. Yeah. And they're like, and it's great, because sometimes they go, pow, pow, pow. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> right, fun. Yeah. And then the, it bounces different when what? there's an explosion. <laughs> Which is, a, you know, that's an introduction of a new that element of play. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if you really want the ball to move fast, mm-hmm. you got to hit it extra hard, and then there's an explosion. That's pool two. Yeah, we gotta pool add two. some more features to yeah. pool two. Yeah. So we've got solitary bees constructing their nests entirely of plastic sometimes, uh, but mm-hmm. also more than sometimes partially out of plastic. And we've got Sam with explodey billiard balls from the 1860s that were so bad no one would use them except that then they went on to be a commercially successful product that occasionally killed people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to give my... Point my pink buck to Stefan because I didn't know about bees and plastics. And even though we're slowly destroying the earth, I like to think that there are some species out there that could maybe adapt. And so maybe they like won't die of mold at some point and they'll yeah. just be very dry bees. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give mine to Sam uh, because I love weird science history and the, all of the, all of the stuff. Stupid little directions we went on the way to getting to where we are now, mm. even if it did make your head catch on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's time to ask the science couch. Uh, we've got a question to be read to us by Sam for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. At SPath73 asks, what exactly is corn plastic? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that corn plastic is any one thing. So you can, you know, once you got organic compounds, you can polymerize them in various ways. But I think that there is more than one way to turn corn into plastic, like molecules from corn into a polymer. And sometimes you do that with the intent for it to be something that's easily, like people are like, oh, that must be easier to compost. Mm. But like, not if you don't have that as a goal. Right. So it sort of like depends on what you end up doing with it. Is is this a thing that like, because we talked about cellulose too, and like, is it a thing about sh- like a property of sh- sugars that because they're, that sugars are made up of these like chains of yeah. things that that makes it easier to make into a plastic, which is a chain of... It has the carbon there. It's like, it, mm. it has a bunch of organic compounds. A cellulose is a polymer. It's a polymer of sugar. But like, I think a lot of what happens is you break that down and you create great ethanol or something like that. And that's sort of your feedstock for going into the biochemical process. Mm. My other guess is that because cellulose is like a structural polymer of glucose in the way that like glycogen is less structural. It just exists as a yeah. storage unit. But like cellulose is like gives plant structure. So then mm. it itself is a sturdier compound and then can add functional groups onto it or break it down or reassemble it. And it'll make something sturdy like plastic. Mm. Whereas like if you took glycogen from our bodies, it would be floppy and a mess. Oh, glycogen is yeah. trash. For, yeah. <laughs> it's, good, it's good at one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a hot take. Glycogen is fine. It's very good at the one thing it does. Which is to store energy for quick availability in our bodies. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, cellulose is 
very sturdy, very good at being sturdy. And then if you, could, if you know how to do organic chemistry, you can do organic chemistry to it. I'm not sure how corn plastic actually happens. If you, you are using the sugar from the corn or if you're using the cellulose from the corn. It might, it's probably both. So the reading that I've done, corn is usually used to make one type of plastic called polylactic acid, which is made from fermented plant starch. Okay. So starch mm. is another sugar mm-hmm. polymer. Mm-hmm. There's cellulose and starch, and those are the two like plant sugar polymers. But do you have to ferment it first? So yeah, so, so starch is the other one. Cellulose is one of the structural plant sugar compounds. Starch is the other. Um, and like the fermentation is probably just like the chemical reactions that you need to turn it into the plastic. I don't have specifics about that process. I don't know if it's proprietary or if I'm just like not a chemist. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> didn't dig into the, the research about that. And you can also make it from other plants besides corn. Like mm-hmm. if you find mm-hmm. starchy compounds, you can turn it into polylactic acid through this process. And benefits of corn plastic that or like proponents of, of corn plastic say that it's carbon neutral because it's coming from plants that absorb carbon from the environment and then we're turning it back into plastic that goes gets reintroduced into the environment again. Right. So it's like the whole process right. the cycle as a whole rather than just like generating trash. Uh-huh. Sure. We're taking corn, which would have been <clears throat> trash at some point or like poop. Yeah. Uh, and we're turning it into plastic that we then throw away. Or in an ideal world, compost to recycle it back. And is this stuff, this polylactic acid, is it compostable? It is compostable. Okay. But what is interesting is that it's only compostable in specific conditions, like okay. under specific conditions. Mm-hmm. What a Scientific American article looked into, like they talked to people who actually do this kind of composting work. Polylactic acid will decompose into carbon dioxide and water in a controlled composting environment in fewer than 90 days. But what that means is they need to have microbes digesting it, not just worms, not just like a backyard composting thing. Mm-hmm. It has to reach 140 degrees for 10 consecutive days. Oh, and oh. so it's like biodegradable, but there are only like between 100 and 150 facilities as mm-hmm. of the writing time of this article that can compost things in this very specific huh. industrial way to handle food processing waste or compostable waste in this way. Hmm. Um, and you can't just like compost can't just put them in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, that is also a choice that you have to make, right? So, like, people have these corn-cut plastics, but if they're thrown into landfills, there's no evidence that they'll degrade any faster than any other uh, type of plastic. So this has to be a very intentional change in the way that people use these single-use plastic objects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you throw polylactic acid cup into a landfill, it's, like— just throwing any other plastic cup in the landfill? Yeah, and okay. there's no benefit from corn plastic in that way. What I will also say is apparently, so you can make a bunch of different plastics from corn, but now we, like, the thing corn plastic is polylactic acid. That's sort of like we've decided that that's what we're going to call polylactic acid is corn plastic. But it is not the only plastic you can make from corn, which is interesting. How many plastics <clears throat> can you make from corn? Well, you can make polyethylene from corn. So just normal polyethylene, mm-hmm. but it's like from a different feedstock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can make like, and I think that's true of various like existing 
plastics. I guess that makes sense. Like if you break down corn enough, then you can get yeah. monomer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That you can then polymerize into something. If you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out upcoming topics for our future episodes every week. Thank you to at Bridget McGann, at Cacodemonia, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this week. Final thing, everybody laughing at Cacodemonia here in the studio. <laughs> it could be Keiko. Studio. It's Poop Demon. Let's be honest with ourselves. <laughs> Final scores. Sari, one. Sam, Two, Stefan, one, Hank, two. Yay. Yay. I co-win. Hey, yeah. high five with our feet. <laughs> if you like this show and you want to help us out, you can do that by leaving a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show. And also, we'll be looking at iTunes reviews for topic ideas for future episodes. Leave your ideas in our iTunes reviews. Second, you can tweet out your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people about us. us. And if you want to read more about any of our topics today, check out scishowtangents.org to find links to all of our sources and probably some pictures of blood stuff made out of blood. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stephen Chin. I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the lovely team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes, along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our social media organizer is Victoria Bongiorno and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. In 2018, a group of Australian scientists had six adults swallow the head of a Lego minifigure in order to figure (laughs) out how long it would take for it to travel through their bodies. Mm. So first they established the participants' standard poop characteristics and habits before eating the Lego heads and formulated what they called the stool hardness and transit, or SHAT score. (laughs) Then they took another SHAT score after it. It was in their bodies and traveling through their digestive systems. And then they measured the amount of time the Lego had spent in their subject systems with the found and retrieved time or the uh, fart. The fart. Score. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, uh, they found no meaningful changes in the shat score uh, before and after the eating of the head uh-huh. and determined an average fart score of 1.71 days. And they concluded that basically you can eat Lego heads all day long and not suffer any negative oh, repercussions from it. <laughs> I feel like. My fart score would be lower than that. Well, but you know, you probably would have been uh, filtered out of the. I'm an outlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>